Praise God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to do our best to work our way into the first two verses of chapter 6 today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I trust that you've uh, seen Pastor Steve's brief video via email this week about our new church app. We have just shy of 80 downloads so far. By the end of today, if you have a smartphone or device, I'm expecting pretty much everyone to have downloaded the Grace app. Yep. I saw something. Oh. Well, the video that you're going to see is really good. And after you see the video, I know you're going to want to download the app. And I'll be quiet and preach now. It's just really good. I've enjoyed it this week. And um, so anyways, I'll let Pastor Steve follow up this week uh, and next Sunday morning. But um, just so you know, it's out there and it's really good. All right. Uh, Let's pray together and uh, dig into God's word today. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the opportunity we have to look into the perfect law of liberty, your word and to be faithful hearers and doers of it. Help us today to understand these words within their context and to make proper application. In Christ's name we we pray, amen. If I was going to have a proposition for this morning, it would simply be healthy churches encouraged by eternal promises are lighthouses for gospel mission. I think that's a proper proposition within what we've been studying. Healthy churches that are encouraged by eternal promises are lighthouses for gospel mission. Our proposition this morning, though simple, states a clear truth that will remain true until the Lord Jesus comes. Our church mission statement restates our proposition that Grace Church of Mentor exists to glorify God by evangelizing the lost and equipping the saints with the goal of Christ-likeness. And every Bible-believing church has been given gospel mission. We learn the doing of that mission from the life of our Savior, and we always remember that he gave us his life so that we might live his life. Intentional gospel mission was the lifestyle also of Christ's disciples and apostles, It became the mission of not just the men of the New Testament church, but equally so for women. We certainly know how instrumental Priscilla and her husband were in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, even among the church people that we study in this letter. Intentional gospel mission was uh, certainly the, the lifestyle of ladies like Tabitha in Acts 9. And Lydia in Acts 16. And upon the shoulders of these two women, we can really place the responsibility of the gospel proceeding from the Middle East into the far Western world as they knew it at that time. The ladies of Thessalonica, according to Acts 17, tremendously influenced gospel progress in their own city. They, along with the other saints of 
this church in that city, Paul describes their influence as being uh, very missional, where the gospel not only saturated their church, but saturated their city and Macedonia and Achaia also, the region right beyond them and even regions beyond that. In every place, chapter 1 tells us, their faith towards God had gone forth. Corinth at her inception knew gospel progress. They allowed, as you know, carnality to fester within and over time that halted their gospel progress. Paul wrote to them his first letter addressing that sin within and Titus reports to him, as we've already mentioned, that they responded well. So he pens the second letter that we've been studying together. Corinth, forgiven and still growing past their collective sin pattern, is encouraged by Paul in Christ at this point. And Paul knows Satan would love to distract them from gospel progress. So he addresses potential problems within and highlights spiritual and eternal promises that are theirs for encouragement in their walk with God. And as they continue to spiritually mature and heal, Paul knows it's certainly good for a healthy church to be reminded of its gospel purpose. And we've been tilling the groundwork unto this purpose over the last several weeks that we've been together. So our context this morning picks up in verse 18. We've been told in verse 16 to our, that our approach to mankind in general has been forever altered in Christ. We no longer approach mankind according to the flesh, as even Paul said he did with Christ. But verse 17 reminds us that yes, we are new creations in Christ, brand new, the old way of living our lives, which certainly includes our approach to man, is altogether different now. It's a brand new purpose. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are becoming brand new. And within this context, a unique and singular, beautiful way in which we approach men in gospel mission. We exclusively approach them as Paul did Corinth, as he describes it in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. Go back with me there real quickly, just for a context, since we're speaking of this church. And let's look on how Paul singularly decided to approach the Corinthian church with gospel purpose. How he did it and how he did not do it. He's speaking of his first entrance into the city and the purpose as to why he came and to why he was spiritually successful. Verse 1, he said, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come in superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming unto you only the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you. I did not approach you. Remember verse 16? I'm no longer going to approach men according to the flesh. Right? There's a brand new person in my life is Jesus Christ. He's made me brand new, therefore outlining for me a brand new way in which I approach people. A brand new singular, beautiful way. I came to you preaching nothing except Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Right? This is that new way. This is that new way in which mission would be done. Right? Christ gave his life so that we might be changed, so that we might live the reason that he lived his life. So our mission commences here more proactively in verses 18 and 19 as you go back to chapter 5. Let's read those verses together. Now all these things are from God. All these things are in reference to the verses that we worked through the past couple weeks. And it is God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. I was familiar with a group of college students that were in a business class group project, and they had developed a product that their professor thought would have some position in the marketplace. And after his evaluation um, of this particular product, his first suggestion to the group was to hire a lawyer who could help them obtain the intellectual property rights to their product. He said, this may be so good and may be so well received in the market, he said, you don't even want anyone else in your classroom to hijack your idea and your product and go get it out there before you do. So the first thing you need to do is hire a lawyer, obtain the intellectual property rights to your product, make it exclusively yours, every bit of it from the original concept all the way through each development phase into the final phase. Make it yours. Well, it's more than interesting to me that Paul's re-emphasis of the proprietary rights of the gospel are God's. They're all his. In an exclusive message of reconciliation, it's exclusive because it's of divine origin. The whole message of the gospel is eternally God's message. In eternity past, God decreed to save those who he permitted to fall. Now, all of these things, the text says, are from God. Go back to verse 11 with me real quickly. We've already seen this in the passages we've preached in this letter. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are manifest to who? to God. And then I hope we are all manifest to your own conscience. It is before God first that our gospel motivations and methodologies are made manifest. And of course, this flows from the text of the Bema Seat. Before we take his gospel to men. And even if our approach, if your approach to this letter allows you to stretch back into chapter 4 and verse 6 and 7, let's go back there. All right, if you need to turn a page, 
please do so, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, you'll be reminded, for it is God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. Light shall shine out of darkness. Is the one who has also shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. God has the divine proprietary rights of his spiritual rescue operations and transactions. Let's go read another familiar text in Ephesians chapter 1, written by the same author. I really feel we need to reread this so that we can um, familiarize ourselves again with this, uh, this mission and its exclusive uh, message that originates from an eternal God. This is his. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as God chose us in him in eternity past before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind, his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his own will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in him you also after listening to the message of truth the gospel of your salvation having also believed you were sealed in him by the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's possession to the praise of his glory in eternity past Gospel message and gospel mission has all been God's. It's all been God's. He's planned it all. And what was he doing? Well, verses 18 and 19 sound quite similar to one another as we've already read. And as they announce what God is doing, and then they describe what he has for us to do in relationship to his exclusive message in relationship to this mission. It says here, who reconciled us to himself. Where the word reconciled is pretty simply understood. From the moment we were born again until now and forevermore, we were made friends with God in Christ. 
One author said this was not just a polite ignoring or reduction of hostility, but rather it's total and objective removal of hostility. We have been made friends with God. God reconciled us unto himself through Christ. Verse 19 says something similar, doesn't it? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So it was once something done in our personal past. The grammar here of this word reconciling tells us that it continues to happen. This is something that God's been offering to every soul that's outside of Christ since Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So it's not just an exclusive personal offer. It is a public offering before men to see him for who he is as God's son. This is God's purpose. And verse 19 teaches us a wonderful relief of God's reconciling influence on us in Christ. That verse 18 doesn't match. It says here, not counting their trespasses against them. And the word counting here is simply understood as well. It means to keep a record, to bear in mind, or even to remember. What a rich blessing we have. Just right here among others. It will be further explained today. The language used here teaches us that uh, it is God's active application of his reconciling promise. That he will no longer keep a record or bear in mind or even remember our sin. Wasn't that one of the greatest reliefs of your soul just after you were born again? Didn't it overwhelm you that there was a couple things that God just couldn't do? He can't lie and he can no longer remember your sin. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 12 says, For I will be merciful toward their wrongdoings, and their sins I will no longer remember. It's all God's doing in Christ, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only son. Go over with me to 1 John chapter 4, and let's read another author of Scripture that speaks of this exclusive message being God's as demonstrated Uh, through Christ. And let's begin reading in verse 7. First John chapter 4 and verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And this is going to be speaking of a salvific love first, and then a love we share among one another. So this is saving love. It is from God. This is God's message and God's mission. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is all God's message and mission. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. 
By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. You can flip back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Reconciliation of sinners back to God is Christ's doing. And he mercifully incorporates us then, um, not just through reconciliation, but by action in giving us a responsibility here that both the verses mention again. Verse 18 says that he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The word gave here is certainly a verb of the past, which really tells us that he gave you this ministry the moment you were born again. That happened for me when I was five years old. I can remember it like it was yesterday, like it was a minute ago. When I was five years old and Christ saved me, I was given at that moment a ministry. And that ministry, I have never been relieved from the responsibility of that ministry since I was five. Didn't know I was going to be a pastor, didn't know what I was going to be. But Paul's telling the Corinthian believers here that this exclusive divine message and mission, right, it's all God's, but he's granted to us as God's children, the moment you're saved, a role in serving in gospel ministry. And that's why the word ministry is used here. It's from the Greek word diakonos, where we get English word deacon, or just simply servant. God has called everyone here to be servants since the day you were born again in this gospel mission. Verse 19 says, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Okay. The word committed here is also similar in grammar to the word gave in verse 18. The idea is from the moment you were born again to the present. He has laid upon you and me the responsibility of not just serving in gospel ministry here, but he's given us the word, basic Greek word for word here, logon or logos, where we get our English word word. He's given us the opportunity of speaking this message. And I think that's interesting to me here. It may not be interesting to you, but two verses pretty much stating the same thing in nuanced in two different ways. He's saying here that gospel ministry is given to all of us. It's committed to all of us to the moment that we're born again, and it includes serving and speaking. It includes serving and speaking. So how does this look and function in the New Testament local church today? Well, I think there are many activities of service in the local church for the strengthening of the body. They're all necessary, but I'll ask you this, unto what end? Unto what end? As we remember that God has the exclusive rights to this message and to this message in eternity past, he has the intellectual property rights to all of the salvation plan for men, including his action plans for us. From reconciliation to action, both serving and speaking, and healthy members of local churches are active doing both unto gospel 
progress. So under our mission, there's reconciliation and action, and it's all God's plan, and he's committed it to us. Now, all I can say is this. From all the study and all the pages, all the authors that I've read, right, the application for us, I think, would be this. Um, many of us have been around, you know, evangelical Christianity a long time, right? And we would say we always want to be part of a Bible-believing church that preached God's word and was about gospel mission, okay? Wonderful. All right, let's kind of keep walking through the, the logical thought process, I hope, process, I hope of, the, uh, of, of this particular part of the passage. My history growing up in Bible-believing churches, or among them and in one, um, and watching and observing others, and my own life included, we were always all about gospel mission. So, so there, were, there was really nobody in the church that was interested in not being involved with gospel promotion. Some would relegate their gospel activity to mere service. And that's okay to serve. The text says it, right? We are ministers of the gospel. Now, when I look at that word minister and I look at it in other New Testament contexts, as it relates to this immediate context, what I understand it to mean here is um, there's a reason why Paul restated the same thing in two different ways. Right? It's okay to be involved in serving in a local church that's about gospel mission. Well, how do we serve? Well, the four major spiritual gift texts tell us we serve according to our gift. So whatever your spiritual gift is or gifts are, we need to identify those, we need to hone those, we need to be shepherded to implementing those. As 1 Peter 4, verses 9 to 11 would say, there's serving gifts and there's speaking gifts, and whatever those gifts are, they're given to you by the manifold grace of God. They're of divine origin, and you are to, to um, steward those gifts to encourage the flock unto the glory of God for eternal purposes by Jesus Christ. And so there needs to be, if we could, a divine lateral implementation of your spiritual gifts to the encouragement and the building up of the body. But what Paul's saying here, that's one aspect of understanding what's been committed to us. He goes on to say there's also the speaking of that mission, the speaking of the content of that gospel within the mission. That's why I think he uses again diakonos and logos here. Every saint is responsible to implement their gift to strengthen the body. That's why I say unto, unto what end you see. There's got to be the speaking of the gospel not only among the flock but we're going to find out here within the context to those who are without Christ who are outside the flock. This is what he has committed to us, or given to us, and committed to us. It is serving, and it is speaking. Going back to my ecclesiastical church history, it's not as long as most in the room, or some in the room, I, I, and I, probably to yours too. Again, I, 
we, we never really struggled people serving in their spiritual gifts ladder, laterally. We never really struggled in people utilizing those spiritual gifts even to the promotion of gospel progress. If you had the gift of giving, maybe you would give um, some money to support a missionary who is going overseas. Uh, maybe you would give an extra chunk of money to support a youth outreach or a Grace Bible Day Camp outreach. Certainly nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, maybe you would um, have the gift of helps and you would spend hours here, right? Stuffing envelopes. Maybe you even prayed that God would use that envelope as it went into someone's mailbox and eventually into their hands and their eyes saw it, that God would use that invitation to bring them here, right? So that they could hear the gospel at this particular event. Certainly nothing wrong with that. Many of you served many ways I did too, gospel purposes laterally. But what Paul's saying here, the, the church is not a saving agency. It's a sending agency. We spent all of our time, most of our gospel missional time, laterally encouraging one another to, to do gospel work collectively as a church, whether over the seas or in the area. But Paul is, is really speaking personally to each Corinthian saint here saying, wait, God's given to you the opportunity to speak. You see, folks, it had to be that way because they didn't have vacation Bible school back then. They didn't have ultimate challenges back then. They didn't have Christmas programs and Easter programs. And, and quite frankly, they didn't have bulk mailing opportunities either. So if we're going to hear it as they heard it in this context, friends... We have to hear this personally. And there's a dual, dual function to this missional purpose owned by all of us, okay? And there must be a speaking of the gospel message both inside and outside the church on a personal level, all right? So I just want to challenge your hearts. My heart's been challenged by that again this week. You know, who, who am I engaging in the community by way of redemptive relationship building that I could love them just because they're created in God's image? And I don't love them whether they hear my gospel message or not. I just love them, right? And along the way, as I build that relationship, I naturally have the opportunity to speak this message. I think it needs to be the burden on all of our hearts according to this context that you know enough unsafe people well where they would hear this message from you. I think that's the primary application. There's a secondary application. I took an Uber ride this week, right? And uh, I had a driver. His name was Kingston. And uh, some Uber drivers just don't want to talk. Uh, others do. So... Um, you try to figure out ways to create a conversation by those who don't want to talk, and then it's pretty easy when those who do. This guy wanted to talk. And uh, it was clear to me that um, he had, well, the conversation started about, you know, he asked me where I was from, blah, 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 what I was doing in town. And, and then uh, I asked him where he was from. And 
what he was doing in town. And he said, I grew up in the south side of Chicago. and I grew up like a lot of kids did in the south side of Chicago. And uh, he said, I committed enough crimes to spend seven years behind bars. He said, I got out two years ago. And um, he said, I want to write a book. I said, well, great. What, what book do you want to write? And he goes, I want to write a book on my life story to try to help kids get out of the grip of the south side of Chicago. And I said, okay, great. So I just started wondering. I said, what's the grip? What's the grip? And he goes, this is going to sound like the strangest thing to you. He goes, but when that, when that environment's all you know, your mother and father, this is what the guy said, your mother and father becomes the streets. And you do whatever you have to do to get food, clothing, and shelter from the streets. Because most of us grew up in broken homes. Most of us didn't have any parents at all. It was our grandparents that raised us, and we were raised by the streets. And we don't feel like we can get out, right? Because we're leaving our family, which is what happens on the streets. And then you're caught in that vortex. He said, then you're, right? And then when you're taught in prison, there's another whole other thing. It's an interesting conversation. But mixed in that conversation was, was, was obviously a, a godly grandmother. And he said, but I had a grandma who always prayed for me, right? And I have a grandma that moved here to Madison, Wisconsin with me. And I live with my grandma. And, and he goes, ultimately, he said, it's just really Jesus that gets a hold of a life and changes it, Amen. right? I was like, well, this is going to be an easy conversation. <laughs> but I thought, you know what? That was my situational opportunity to what his mom took as a lifetime opportunity. His grandmother took as a lifetime opportunity. God uses both. Don't get me wrong. But we've got to be involved in both, I think, if we're going to be a voice for this message. So I would just say, when's the last time you had an opportunity to be a voice for the gospel? And if you haven't had that opportunity, I would just encourage you, probably haven't been praying for that opportunity. Right? And it's very, very, very simple to pray and to be, obviously see that opportunity, regardless how the person responds. But God will give you that relationship, whether short or long term. He'll give it to you, and he'll give you multiple. The results are up to him, but I really believe this is God's exclusive message, and obviously he's given us this ministry, and he's given us this word, and we ought to be serving in gospel churches, our gospel church, unto the proclamation of the gospel collectively and also personally. Okay? So verse 20. Therefore, there's a conclusion of all the verses since verse 16. Therefore, understanding these things we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is a very puzzling verse for many of us. It was for me for years, and this is the first time I've ever had the opportunity to preach through this letter. So going through this letter verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter has been super helpful. So I hope the explanation of the verse I give to you is appropriate. 
and according to the context. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God was making an appeal through us. The word ambassadors here, um, its root just simply means to be the older or the eldest. But it came to be used in connections with functions for which the wisdom of age was a necessary prerequisite. In time, it became a title for a person who was a political envoy for their nation to another. But that was this latter application. As the Corinthian people would have heard this reality, therefore we our, are the eldest or the elder. We are to be the people of wisdom and of apparent spiritual age as God's ministers and speakers of his exclusive divine message within his mission. Interesting. Why use this word ambassadors? I think he's already talked about the active sending side. I think when you get to verse 20, he's already dealt with that. Uh, in verses 18 and 19, in verse 20, he's talking about some spiritual apparent age, I guess, as I understand it. And that because it's God's message and not your message, when it's received and understood, it's received, and what you're given is really spiritual maturity in Christ. It's not about you. It's about God, remember? It's his message from eternity past. We already covered that theology. So now you become, in your service and in your messaging, God's maturity. Because the message has become fully mature to you in Christ. Let me, let me explain this. When I was saved at five years old, okay, uh, I remember at that moment, great relief, great joy, and I felt at that moment that I had been commissioned by God to go tell the world about Jesus. <laughs> Seriously, do you remember that when you were first saved, all you wanted to do was just go tell someone right away? How many of you felt that way? I think this is what this is talking about. And remember, where he's talking to a Corinthian church that had gotten itself in trouble, and they had lost their gospel missional way, and they're coming back to spiritual health, and so he's reorienting them by reminding them of their full maturity that they have in Jesus Christ. It's not of themselves. And in him, you've become ambassadors. You may not feel very mature, Corinthian people, on your way back from the carnality that you've been um, swimming in for the last few years, you may not feel very mature, but he's saying, no, 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 no. Remember, it's not about your sanctification here. It's about your justification here. You are ambassadors. You are the eldest ones in Christ. And at five years old, I jumped up from kneeling by my dad. Uh, my dad's chair in his bedroom and I ran downstairs and I told my grandfather and I told my grandmother and I told who were visiting for the holidays and I told my mom, right? Went and told my brothers and sisters. I've told you the story before. It was wintertime, Christmas. 
I ran outside without a coat, ran to my next door neighbor who had no idea who Jesus was, I suppose. His name was Greg. I knocked on the door, right? Interrupted their holiday time and said, I got to talk to Greg, five years old. However, I said it, Greg, I'm saved. I know Jesus. Good, right? I didn't do that on the authority of being five and having a lot of wisdom. With 60 months of living under my belt, You see my point? On whose authority did I do that? That was the spirit of God's work in my heart, I believe. But at five, positionally, I was considered the elder or the eldest. In Christ, it's all of Christ. And we speak having been transformed by the spirit of God because of the shed blood of Christ. And God in his mercy allowed it to happen. Okay. So the message is powerful here. We are ambassadors for Christ because it's in him we've been saved. So if you're a newer believer or you're a believer that's been involved in some carnality, what churchgoers have known maybe for quite some time is a backslidden state. And you've confessed, you've repented, and you're in fellowship with God. You are the elder. You are the eldest. Because that's exactly where Corinth was. Having been saved, having walked out of fellowship, now they're back. And Paul is able to say with confidence, I don't have to let you prove yourself for the next six months or six years as to whether you're ambassador or not because your ambassadorship is not of you, it's of God. That you're right with him. Be part of the mission. You are. You are. We are. Spiritually, the elder, the eldest for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. Whose message is it? It's God's message. Whose son is it? It's God's son. It's the spirit of God who indwells. So it's not you who has claimed your own maturity. It's God who's declared it upon you in Christ. So it's God who will speak his appeal through you as his redeemed ambassador. We do have an appeal to make. It's a gospel appeal, and it's done through us. And then he says here, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, I believe this has a twofold application as I've studied it, with a primary application to the believer, not the unbeliever. I do believe he's saying, because he knew there was that unbelieving remnant in Corinth. Remember the religious hucksters of chapter 2 that we've identified here? I really believe he could say to those people, right? It's kind of like a second, third level. He could say, you know what? I know the remnant, the smaller part of you Corinthian attenders to the church here need to be born again. So you need to be reconciled to God. But what I think he's saying here is the believers in general here need to be reconciled unto God's missional purpose. 
You need to be reconciled unto God's missional purpose. And he says here, we beg you, we implore you on the behalf of Christ. What extent did Christ go to in obedience to the Father for the benefit of your salvation? Right? What extent did he go to? He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. On behalf of what Christ has done for you, we beg you, consider him and what he's done and be reconciled to God's message and his mission, both in service and in speaking. So the plea is to be understood as addressing the body, which would include those two parties, but primarily the believing party to be reconciled back. What's verse 21? If you want to go back on our church website, I believe you can find a message just preached on this text. Right? But verse 21 is a parenthesis, right, here, between verse 20 and chapter 6 and verse 1. It's, it's, it's probably the most comprehensive theological statement of the doctrine of justification in Scripture. Okay, but I want to encourage you as to why it's here as a parenthetical statement of doctrinal truth. Let's read it. God made him, remember this is all God's message, God made him Christ who knew no sin, sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, you can go back and listen to that sermon on your own time. This, this could be e- easily uh, a text of scripture that could be preached on for a month, word by word, line by line. But he's rehearsing here in a parenthetical way the reality that God laid upon Christ or reckoned Christ or imputed Christ with our sin. Christ didn't become a sinner. He was legally imputed with our sin on the cross. He incurred God's wrath for us upon himself, right? For a reason. So that God, when we're born again, could declare us, could impute us with the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we literally became, this is all subjective reality to us, but objective in the way we live it. This is what God's done. God did this to Christ and he's done this to us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's why we always say here, right? When God sees you, he sees his son. And if you have a good day, he doesn't love you more. And if you have a bad day, he doesn't love you less. It's just a real elementary way of restating the truth of this text. Because when you're saved, you're justified. You're, you're put into a right relationship with God. Because of the person and work of his son. So why put that here? I believe it's a reminder to the Corinthian church in relationship to its sordid past after they came to Christ. You'll never be involved in ministry of reconciliation 
either in serving or speaking, if you focus on your failures after you've been saved. You just won't. And so he speaks the truth of verse 18, 19, and 20. Then he pumps the brakes. He stops and gives us this deep theological restatement of what he's just said. Because who's he speaking to? He's speaking again to a Corinthian church that had been messed up. They had come back to fellowship, and they're just now beginning again right, to deepen their fellowship and walk and understanding of God. He's not speaking this to an Ephesus church. Right? He's speaking this to Corinth, so we have to understand it within its context. Your gospel participation, your ambassadorship in gospel participation is not granted to you because of your progressive sanctification. It's given to you because of your justification. Certainly our goal is to grow in Christ's likeness, right? Certainly that's the goal. But if your spiritual growth looks anything like mine, it's like this. And when I'm here, I don't mind being an ambassador. When I'm here, I don't think about being an ambassador. But as I'm practicing 1 John 1, 9, I'm restored to fellowship. You see my point? So, so my ambassadorship's not based on my practical sanctification. It's based on my positional justification. So my believing friend, if you've struggled and walked back into fellowship with God, your ambassadorship has never been relinquished. You speak on the authority of Christ in you, not your own personal integrity. Okay. If you're not walking with God and you've gotten yourself entangled with the things of this world, I know that you're not being missional in your service or in your speaking. But today, this morning, may I offer you an opportunity to, to rejoin the realities of what you've been called as an ambassador in gospel work. Okay? So confess, forsake, repent, and you don't have to wait a week, three weeks. You don't have to take a course on recovery from whatever to be that ambassador because it's based on justification. Isn't God wonderful? Amen. Isn't that amazing? And with, with, with incredible humility, my friends, knowing the forgiveness, not only salvation-wise, but just practically after we're saved, knowing the comprehensive ability of God to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and then immediately, right, to remind us that in Christ we are the older we are the eldest. The world's not going to hear the gospel message from anyone else but genuine ambassadors of that message. Okay. And I have to tell you, I, I don't think I've ever understood, because I've never preached through this book. I've read through it tons. I've never preached it. I've never understood why this parenthesis is here. But when you understand it in light of its context, it's super encouraging to me because I know my own fallenness. And um, 
it's a, it becomes a great opportunity uh, of reminder for all of us. Okay? Uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to just work through these verses together. Um, we pray that all of us would understand them as you wanted them to be understood. And, and Lord, we pray as we draw the circle around ourselves, uh, starting with me, that um, we would always know, that I would always know that this is God's exclusive divine message. It's always been his. Though I or the church in general or the world tries to hijack this message, it's impossible because it's his in eternity past. We're all finite. It's his message. It's his doctrine. And by his mercy, we've been able to know it in the person of his son. And so we've become, been given the ministry of serving and speaking his message. And Lord, even though we've been weak in our walk, by your mercy and grace, you give us that opportunity to enjoy that fellowship again and to realize what's never changed in God's mind for us, but only changed in our mind, that we still are ambassadors. You've put us both within and without the church and in particular in unique personal situations to to pray and then to, to realize who among us and outside of us is still without Jesus so that we can live his life before them as best we can to show his love so we might have an opportunity to speak the gospel and that they would be saved. Thank you, Lord, for just visiting with us this morning where two or three are gathered together in your name. You're there in the midst and we thank you for not just being with us, but within us in the person of your spirit to help us know the significance of these words as they've been read and spoken and applied this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.